0: Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 20, The Element of Surprise. In this episode, we look at how chemists wrestled with the ever-lengthening list of elements they discovered. Thanks to those who already support this podcast, supporters are able to see a hyperlink to an example of music mentioned in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. The science fiction giant and science writer Isaac Asimov remarked There is a curious parallel in the histories of organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry of the 19th century the opening decades of the century saw a puzzling proliferation in the number of organic compounds and also in the number of elements. The third quarter of the century saw the realm of organic compounds reduced to order, thanks to Kekulé's structural formula. It saw the realm of elements reduced to order also, and at least part of the credit for both changes goes to events at a particular international meeting of scientists. We've already covered how describing organic compounds by means of structure clarified organic chemistry immensely. Now, let's look at what happened simultaneously with inorganic chemistry, particularly with all these elements appearing out of nowhere. By 1830, there were about 55 elements that chemists knew, and that number kept ratcheting up every decade. Would there be a limit? Why was or was not there a limit? What's going on? Given how biologists were organizing living creatures into phyla, orders, and other groupings, couldn't chemists do the same? The first person to find a tiny island of order in this sea of elements was a German chemist named Johann Wolfgang Döbereiner. He realized in 1829 that the new element bromine was somewhere in between the chemical properties of chlorine and iodine. Among the properties that seemed to smoothly flow from chlorine to bromine to iodine was color, reactivity, and atomic weight. A second trio of elements in which properties flowed in the same way was calcium, strontium, and barium. A third trio was sulfur, selenium, and tellurium. Interestingly, these three sets, or triads, as Dubereiner called them, all had the middle element's atomic weight right between the end elements. Most chemists just regarded these triads as curiosities that happened to exist by coincidence. And, in any case, the atomic weight of elements wasn't a particularly important chemical fact back then. Chemists of that day were still arguing over specific values of atomic weights. As we've seen before, some thought carbon was 6 with respect to hydrogen and some said 12. Some chemists thought oxygen was 8, and some said 16. They couldn't agree on this supposed chemical fact, so of what value would atomic weights be regarding a list of elements anyway? The confusion, as we also talked about, was because chemists didn't realize the difference between equivalent weight, the weight required to react with a known weight of another chemical, the molecular weight, how much a molecule weighed with respect to hydrogen, and the atomic weight, how much one atom of an element weighed with respect to hydrogen. And with these disagreements, how could anyone decide definitively how many atoms of each element were in a molecule, if molecules even existed? The chemical scene was utter chaos by the middle of the 19th century. Max von Pettenkofer, from Bavaria, found another correlation in 1850. He noticed that elemental groups having similar properties had equivalent weights in multiples of 8. This is a weird thing to see, but let me show some examples. Lithium's equivalent weight is 7. Sodium's equivalent weight is 23, or 7 plus 16, or 7 plus 2 times 8. Potassium's equivalent weight is 39, or 7 plus 32, or 7 plus 4 times 8. This is another one of those curiosities that chemists brushed off, and shows how deep they were looking for something, anything, to grab onto. Duma found a year later that some groups of elements had stepwise increments in their atomic weights. So, phosphorus has an atomic weight of 31. Arsenic is 75, or 31 plus 44. Antimony is 119, or 31 plus 2 times 44. Bismuth is 207, or 31 plus 4 times 44. Again it seems weird, but who could explain this? And there were a few other interesting but unexplainable coincidences. Most notable, perhaps, was English chemist William Oedling's 13 different groups of elements based on chemical and physical properties in 1857, but there was no rhyme or reason as to why there were these groups. The English chemist John Newlands came closer to some order in the world of elements by 1864. He listed elements in order of the best-known atomic weights at the time. Upon doing so, he found a strange observation. Every eighth element, at least toward the beginning of the list, repeated the chemical properties. If the elements were put into columns on paper, every eighth element was similar to the eighth one before. So potassium was like sodium, selenium was like sulfur, calcium was like magnesium. It was like Duberiner's triads, except better, Newlands named this scheme the Law of Octaves, in an analogy to musical intervals. Musicians know that, in the Western musical tradition, every eight notes in a scale repeat, but at a lower or higher pitch. The catch with Newlands' scheme was that it kind of worked for elements of lower atomic weight, but as the weights increased, the chemical properties started to fall away from the pattern you might say that the law of octaves gradually went out of tune. Other chemists again regarded Newland's law as a bunch of coincidences, and even called Newland's a crackpot. At one British Chemical Society meeting in March 1866, he was laughed out of the auditorium, with George Carey Foster sarcastically commenting that Newland's table was no better than arranging the elements in alphabetical order. Likewise, in 1862, a French geologist, Alexandre Emile de Chancourtois, had a similar idea. He also arranged his list of elements in order of atomic weight. Instead of a flat table on paper, he plotted them on a cylindrical drum around the perimeter and got a similar result. Because the plot showed elements in a helix around the cylinder, he called his plot the vis tellurique, or telluric screw, where telluric refers to how tellurium appears in the middle of his plot. He published a paper on the topic, but the journal neglected to print a diagram of his cylinder, and so few noticed the paper. Auguste Kekulé, who, as we know, showed how to draw molecular structure on paper and figured out the structure of benzene, decided enough was enough. He proposed an international conference for chemists to meet and discuss this problem. His idea was accepted, and the first International Chemical Congress, and it was in fact the first international meeting of scientists ever, was held in Karlsruhe, Germany in 1866. Ever since, scientists in all fields have annual, semi-annual, or other meetings with some regularity, so they can meet, discuss, brainstorm, and present their latest work. For my part, I have attended meetings of the American Chemical Society and the AVS, once known as the American Vacuum Society, which researches science in the absence of air, which contaminates things. But neither of these organizations yet existed when the Karlsruhe Congress occurred. At the Karlsruhe Congress, 140 chemists came, including an Italian chemist named Stanislao Canizzaro. He had been intrigued with a very old paper published nearly 50 years earlier by Amedeo Avogadro. Avogadro said that equal numbers of gas molecules, or atoms, occupy equal amounts of space, now called Avogadro's hypothesis. Now, I didn't mention Avogadro back in the episode about John Dalton, because his paper was published and mostly ignored then. But Canizzaro, with 50 more years of chemical knowledge, now realized how crucial Avogadro's work was. If you have equal numbers of gaseous particles in equal volumes at equal temperatures and pressures, You can now show if oxygen gas or nitrogen gas molecules are made up of one atom or two. If you know they are monatomic, one atom, or diatomic, two atoms, then you can determine all the other parameters such as equivalent weights and molecular weights and atomic weights, and all the chemical chaos is resolved. So Canizzaro spoke at the conference on Avogadro's work, and then on the last day, passed out copies of a pamphlet with his ideas. Gradually, chemists realized, finally, the importance of Avogadro's hypothesis. The importance of atomic weights became clearer, and all this chaos began to subside. Organic chemistry fell into place, as did inorganic chemistry, as we shall see shortly. Among the attendees at the Congress were two people in our story. The first I mention is German chemist Lothar Meyer. Meyer was quite taken by Cannizzaro's story. After the conference in 1870, he decided to look at elements, not by atomic weight, but by atomic volume. In this case, you know the volume occupied by a particular number of atoms, which will depend on atomic weight. Meyer plotted atomic volumes of elements against atomic weights. The result was a rising and falling line, almost like a waveform, with peaks at sodium, potassium, rubidium, and cesium. Each cycle of rise and fall was called a period, and other chemical properties also rose and fell in sync with the atomic volume. Meyer saw that there were two major waves of seven elements, like Newland's, but the next couple of waves involved a lot more elements, and this is where the law of octaves fell off the track. But 1870 was too late, because Meyer was scooped by the other person who attended the Karlsruhe Congress in 1866, the Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev. Mendeleev had finished an undergraduate degree in chemistry in Russia. His friend, Alexander Borodin, suggested that the two buddies travel to France and Germany, where the major chemical action was, to get the latest chemistry knowledge so they both went to Germany for graduate studies. You may have heard of Alexander Borodin in another context. He was a chemist by education, but his hobby was musical composition. There is even an organic reaction he discovered in 1861, which is now called the hans Borodine borodin reaction. Because Borodin is more famous as a composer, I have asked Alan Rothenberg, a writer of Program Notes for Musical Organizations, to talk a bit about Borodin.
1: Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. Steve has asked me to talk about the only 19th century chemist to win a Tony Award for a Broadway musical. In the latter half of the 19th century, nationalistic movements arose throughout Europe, and they weren't limited to politics. Composers also sought to create music reflective of their national heritage. Composers involved in musical nationalistic movements included Friedrich Chopin and Ignaz Paderewski in Poland, Richard Wagner in Germany, Giuseppe Verdi in Italy, Bedrick Smetna and Anton Dvorak in Bohemia, and many others. In Russia, a group of St. Petersburg composers known as the Mighty Handful, or the Five, were interested in creating music that they considered more authentically Russian than those who were trained in a more formal European conservatory manner, like Peter Tchaikovsky. They used folk music and Russian subject matter to, in the words of music historian Austin Dub, capture elements of rural Russian life to build national pride and to prevent Western ideals from seeping into their culture. The Mighty Handful was led by Mili Balakirev and consisted of Cesar Kui, Modest Mussorgsky, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, and Alexander Borodin. The influence of these composers' musical works was remarkable. Later composers that pointed to the five as inspiration for their own works include Alexander Glazunov, Sergei Prokofiev, Igor Stravinsky, Dmitri Shostakovich, and, perhaps surprisingly, Maurice Ravel and Claude Debussy. Despite this impressive list of successors, only Balakirev and Rimsky-Korsakov could be considered professional musicians. Balakirev ran a music school in Moscow, and Rimsky-Korsakov was professor of composition at the St. Petersburg Conservatory of Music for most of his adult life. The others were really musical amateurs. Kui was a general in the Russian Imperial Army, Mazoriksky a government clerk, and Borodin was a chemist. Alexander Borodin, born in 1833, Studied at the St. Petersburg Medical Surgical Academy, receiving a PhD in 1858 with a dissertation titled On the Action of Ethyl Iodide on Hydrobenzamide and Amerine. He did postdoctoral study in Germany and Italy, including a stint at Heidelberg University, working with Emil Erlenmeyer, inventor of the flask by that name. In 1862, Borodin accepted a professorship in chemistry at the St. Petersburg Academy. He remained at that institution until his death in 1887 and was involved in research, teaching, and administration, including the establishing of medical courses for women in 1872. Steve mentioned the Hunstiker-Borodin reaction. Borodin's other research included work with aldehydes, benzene, and halocarbons, his last publications published shortly before his death, Concerned reactions of amides and on a method for the identification of urea in animal urine. As one would expect from an amateur composer, albeit a very talented one, Borodin's list of musical compositions is relatively small. He wrote two symphonies, two string quartets, some piano pieces, and a few symphonic poems, with the evocative In the Steps of Central Asia the most well known. He began an opera called Prince Igor on the legend of the defeat of Prince Igor of Nogvogorod in the year 1185. The opera was unfinished at Borodin's death and was completed posthumously by Rimsky-Korsakov and Alexander Glazunov. The full opera gets occasional productions, but the suite of Polovtsian dances extracted from the opera is by far Borodin's most popular piece. Those of you who watched a lot of late-night television in the 70s and early 80s might remember this ad for a set of records called 110 Musical Masterpieces. I'm sure you recognize this lovely melody as Stranger in Paradise. But did you know that the original theme is from the Polovetsian Dance No. 2 by Borodin? So many of the melodies of well-known popular songs were actually written by the great masters. Stranger in Paradise was from the 1953 musical Kismet, which also included the now-classic tunes This Is My Beloved and Baubles, Bangles, and Beads. These songs used melodies from Borodin's Second Symphony, Second String Quartet, and the Polovitzian Dances. In 1954, at the 8th Tony Award Ceremony, Kismet was awarded Best Musical. The official award citation for the show includes Charles Litterer for writing the book and producing the show, Robert Wright and George Forrest for their musical adaptation and the lyrics. Who is credited as composer of the music? Why, Alexander Borodin, of course. Many thanks.
0: It turns out that after Dmitry Mendeleev attended the conference, he returned to Russia, where he was a chemistry lecturer working on a modern chemistry textbook, Osnovy Chemie, or Fundamentals of Chemistry, in the Russian language. He would write the elements, now over 60 known, and their atomic weights, on cards, and lay them out on a table like a game of solitaire. In doing so, he noticed that elements' valences, the number of chemical bonds that form to other atoms, rose and fell with the atomic weights. So hydrogen was 1, and it sits by itself for chemical reasons. Then lithium was 1, beryllium was 2, boron was 3, carbon was 4, nitrogen was 3, sulfur was 2, and fluorine was 1. Then we start with the next period, with sodium as 1, and so on. Mendeleev created a table something like that of Newland's, a periodic table of the elements, in 1869, a year before Meyer, but didn't insist that everything repeat every eighth element. One of the adjustments that Mendeleev made to his table was to use valence and other properties as major characteristics in placing elements in the table. He switched a couple of elements out of order of their weights, to make other chemical characteristics fit. One example is putting tellurium with valence 2 and atomic weight 127.6 in front of iodine with valence 1 and atomic weight of 126.9. A second adjustment was leaving gaps if no element actually worked in a particular spot. In a daring move, he claimed that these gaps in the table represented elements not even discovered yet. By 1871, three particular gaps he showed. Empty spots near boron, aluminum, and silicon. He named these allegedly undiscovered elements eca-boron, aluminum and eka silicon Eca is Sanskrit for the number one. Even further, he boldly predicted the properties of these undiscovered elements, daring chemists to find them. This is what made his periodic system, or periodic table, different from the other attempts to organize the list of elements. But was his periodic table immediately accepted? No. In our next episode, we shall continue with this new periodic table and see what happened when chemists started finding the alleged elements Mendeleev predicted. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.